A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I know full well the responsibilities that await me as I enter the door of number 10, and I'll strive unceasingly to try to fulfill the trust and confidence that the British people have placed in me and the things in which I believe. And I would just like to remember some words of St. Francis of Assisi, which I think are really just particularly apt at the moment. Where there is discord, may we bring harmony. Where there is error, may we bring truth. Where there is doubt, may we bring faith. And where there is despair, may we bring hope. It's 1979. With the biggest swing since 1945, the Conservative Party forms the first government in nine years to hold a decent parliamentary majority. Margaret Thatcher, Britain's first female Prime Minister, takes office promising to end years of weak government and economic malaise. Her solution? Deregulation of the City of London and control of the money supply. Unemployment soars and Thatcher faces pressure to change tack. Although she publicly pledges not to U-turn, Thatcher does change course. She abandons monetarism and embraces a new economic approach, privatisation. She passes laws to allow tenants to buy their council houses and transfers public assets into private hands. In 1982, in what turns out to be a stroke of good fortune for the government, Argentina invades the Falklands. British forces retake the islands and Thatcher's political stock soars. Aided by the afterglow of victory and a split opposition, she leads the Conservatives to a landslide victory in 1983. Freed from internal and external opposition, she pushes ahead with privatisation and secures the rebate, a huge handout from the European Economic Community, to make up for the United Kingdom's smaller share of common agricultural policy payments. She closes down most of the United Kingdom's mines and starves out the striking miners. She is re-elected in 1987, once again with a landslide majority. But the political winds are changing. She and her Chancellor, Nigel Lawson, are at odds over whether or not to join the exchange rate mechanism while she and her Foreign Secretary, Geoffrey Howe, are at odds over the scale of European integration. Thatcher presses ahead with big changes to how local councils are funded, and introduces the community charge, which comes to be known as the poll tax. But its unpopularity, coupled with the divisions in her party, see her forced out as Prime Minister in 1990. She leaves office as the longest-serving and most divisive Prime Minister of modern times. I'm Stephen Bush. And I'm John Elledge. Welcome to Prime Ministerial. So I think of the six prime ministers we've looked at in this series, it's pretty unarguable that Thatcher is the biggest and the most historically important, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, she is the big one, right? There are lots of reasons why we picked this as the kind of 
reach of the first series. Modern politicians are still defined in this country in relation to Margaret Thatcher. Their position on a range of issues is seen in terms of the world that Thatcher created, right? Yeah. She is the the author of the others and the ones that, in some cases explicitly, in some cases implicitly. In some cases, of course, you have people who are trying to define themselves against her or for her or in various ways. But, you know, this, yeah, this is it. Okay, so our kind of enduring question in every episode of this series has been, was this Prime Minister successful on their own terms? And it sounds like, without even getting to interviews, we agreed in, in quite an important way Margaret Thatcher was a massively successful politician on her own terms. She did change the world around her. Whether you think that's for good or ill is a different question, but she did change the world in a way that very few Prime Ministers manage. But is that actually the same as being successful like would she have considered herself a success in office do you think yeah there's an anecdote at the start of david cameron's uh, memoirs in which yeah, he said margaret Thatcher was asked what she would have done differently if she had a second go and she paused and said i think i did pretty well the first time around unlike cameron's book which actually reads very well i wouldn't recommend forcing oneself through thatcher's memoirs unless you are being paid to do because it is slightly clunky i spoke to the permanent secretary and he agreed and it obviously is ghost written and, and in part this is someone who thought i think rightly that they had been a successful and transformative prime minister i think the interesting question which i guess is outside the scope of this series but the myth of thatcherism is that she started in 79 with a clear set of solutions and she never you turned and followed them through but even privatization is actually a fairly it's an 83 to 1990 project after monetarism had been abandoned. Now, the very totemic from a kind of coalition building privatisation, which is selling off of council houses, of course, happens in 1980. But it was a more improvisational premiership than people give it credit for. The other thing is, I think there is this sort of Whiggish tendency to read history backwards and see the 11 years as an inevitability, um, because 83 in particular was like such a big landslide. But that election was, as all elections are, it was contingent. Like, there's always been the debate about whether if the SDP hadn't broken away from the Labour Party, that would have made it easier for Labour to win. I believe you actually have strong views that it wouldn't. Well, so the evidence from Crew and King's look at the SDP's vote and what their second preferences are, then actually the SDP made no difference because the if you remove the SDP from the picture, then people... It, it's, it's not like the polls today where you ask Liberal Democrat voters what their preference is and they, at the moment, have quite a clear lean away from Boris Johnson, whereas SDP voters did not have a clear lean they away would, from Mark They were drawing Thatcher. voters from both sides, yeah. is the point. So if they hadn't been there, the result would look the same. But even granting that, there's still the matter of the Falklands, which is a massive boost to the popularity of that government and Margaret Thatcher as an individual, because of just all this jingoism that gets attached to it. So it is possible to imagine a world in which she loses the 1983 election because a couple of those things don't happen. Well, yeah, if she'd lost the Falklands War, which was not... And this, your point about how we read history backwards, it's really important to remember there are lots of things which could have resulted in the Falklands War not being won by the United Kingdom. They could have failed to sufficiently square the Americans. They could have uh, lost the war anyway. There are loads and loads of things which could have happened. The Falklands War was her fault, right? There were decisions taken to draw down British military capacity, which meant the Falklands invasion could happen. If they had been unable to retake it, would bracket Thatcher in with the kind of era of failed transformations, starting from Heath, encompassing sort of Wilson too and, and, and Callaghan. Well, we're already kind of getting a bit lost in the weeds here, because I think, as with anyone remotely political, remotely close to our 
rather wide age bracket, you can just get lost in talking about Margaret Thatcher all day. Let's drill down into some more specifics. Our first interviewee this episode is an academic. She's a historian at UCL. It's Florence Sutcliffe Braithwaite. And we're going to start by trying to define a few terms as to exactly what Thatcherism means and what she believed. There are two angles that I would come at the neoliberalism and Thatcherism question from. The first would be the question of how much neoliberalism actually infused Thatcher's thinking and her political project. And I think that basically her kind of political formation was the sort of interwar liberalism of her father, the grocer, the local liberal politician, the Methodist preacher, plus post-war conservative themes that came from people like Churchill, anxiety about British decline, desire to make Britain great again. And then she picked up on kind of neoliberal ideas when they fitted in basically with what she already thought and when they were useful to her. But when you think of a lot of the things that that we roll into her kind of neoliberal project, cutting taxes for the rich, that's not exactly a new part of conservative thinking. This was going to be my question is to what extent was she a break with her party's past and to what extent was she just continuing trends that were already there because my impression is that although we now see Heath as a wet actually there was quite a lot in the the early Thatcher agenda particularly that he would have quite liked to do he just wasn't strong enough so to what extent was Thatcher really something new? Not nearly to the extent that she and the people around her tried to make out so it was a big concerted effort in the late 70s from people like Thatcher like Keith Joseph to tell a story that basically said that the previous Conservative governments, at least from Macmillan through to Ted Heath, had been socialist. They, they, they pretty much levelled that accusation, that they had abandoned the Conservative agenda to the extent that they were part of this kind of socialist shift in British politics. And they were, Keith Joseph and Margaret Thatcher were reversing it. But that was a powerful political narrative, but I don't think we should take it as truth. What would you say the distinctive features of uh, Thatcherism and what she wanted to achieve were that would have been distinct from, say, Keith Joseph or if Jim Callaghan had got in in 79? Yeah, I think it's definitely clear that the a lot of things about the economy, kind of global economy, also the British economy, with deindustrialization well in train by the late 1970s, trade union activity increasingly militant and increasingly a a problem for business and for government would have necessitated whoever had been in power some moves in the same direction that you took. I mean certainly under a Labour government we probably wouldn't have seen nearly as hostile and antagonistic an attack on the unions but would have seen some of the same things. The things that make Thatcher distinctive, I think her kind of particular blending of social conservatism and moral themes with economic themes is quite particular to her, although might well have echoed things that other conservatives at the time would have said had they been leader. And in particular, I suppose I think that one important thing about Thatcher was that a lot of people saw her as a kind of moral authoritarian, but really the issues that that sort of were at the centre of her moral project were not so much questions of kind of sexual morality, although those sort of figured, the things that were at the heart of her kind of moral vision were what she called Victorian values or the vigorous virtues. So there's kind of thrift, self-reliance, hard work, taking responsibility for yourself and your family. So the family and sexual morality and traditional family values do come in, 
but they're part of this bigger package that's all about work, thrift, responsibility. And she was able to link that to the economic agenda because she constantly said that the reason that these values had, in her view, fallen away in post-war British society, that you were seeing even a kind of de-bourgeoisification or a proletarianisation of parts of the middle class, was that the economic structures and incentives that typically forced people to, to display those bourgeois virtues, in her mind, if they wanted to get on and to succeed, had been eroded. So she wanted to restore that kind of economic framework competition within markets in order to restore what she saw as these bourgeois virtues. The interesting thing about that is that it feels to me it's much harder taking that as the view of Thatcher as a distinctive political actor to cast her as a success, which feels really counterintuitive, particularly in the kind of the prime ministers we've done in previous weeks, to say the one who hung around the longest, who none of the Conservative prime ministers in this series were ever really able to shuck off was a bit of a failure, feels slightly crazy, but at the same time, I find it hard to escape as a conclusion. It feels like she won a lot of the economic arguments, at least for the the next couple of decades. Whether seeing the consensus moving away from that now is a different question, but certainly until at least the financial crash, the ideas that she pushed economically seem to survive. But you're right, I think, that she lost a lot of the social battles. Like, she, Section 28 came in in, what, 1988? It was very late in her time. She was pushing this incredibly regressive law about about not talking about homosexuality in schools. And all that stuff's completely gone. Like, it's, it's completely off the table that any kind of prejudice on that level, it's socially, let alone institutionally, is remotely acceptable. She did clearly lose that one. But I think also, my impression is it feels that the economic winners from Thatcherism did not behave in the way that Margaret Thatcher expected or wanted them to behave. Yeah, I think that's exactly true. I think there's a, a, a kind of anecdote in the book, God and Mrs Thatcher, which is about Thatcher's relationship to organised religion, and where she talks about that as the thing which most troubled Thatcher in her later years. So when It was when she was presented with a kind of excesses of greed and conspicuous consumption that you could see in the city and in popular culture that she was most most alarmed most anxious that she had really succeeded in what she set out to do so what was meant to happen well people were meant to return to uh, a supposed victorian age of capitalist philanthropists who spent a lot of money on building great civic buildings institutions to care for the poor to uplift the poor, to use the language the Victorians would have used. This sounds a lot like the big society idea that David Cameron pushed when he got into office 20 years after she left, which suggests that these ideas do not die easily, even if they don't seem to have worked. Yeah, yeah, completely. And Cameron's, there is such a thing as society, it's just not the same thing as the state. I think a lot of people have pointed out that that's not a reversal of what Thatcher was saying, that's exactly what she was saying when she said there's no such thing as society. She was saying, it's not the state, it's just individuals coming together as families and communities. I mean, let's talk to someone who was actually there at the heart of it, within the inner circle. We now know John Whittingdale as a a Brexiteer, MP for Maldon, Culture Secretary under David Cameron, very effective Select Committee Chair and a major figure in in Vote Leave. But weirdly, of course, he's one of those people whose career semi-happened backwards in that his sort of biggest political achievements were in the 80s as a young advisor to Margaret Thatcher. 
You were very young when you had a lot of these roles. Was she an intimidating presence at that point? Yes, I was very young. I was in my early 20s and she had been Prime Minister in 87 when I went round her for eight years and was this formidable figure on the political stage. And she was intimidating. She was quite demanding. And she would suddenly say, I need to know what the inflation rate was in 1975 or something. And I'd be scrabbling through the books I'd brought and you felt you had to deliver. And she would make it quite plain if she was unhappy. Having said that, she also had a side to her which she was very kind to her staff and if you were one of her team and it was a very small team, then you did feel a a great sense of camaraderie, if you like, as part of that small group. One of the sort of remarkable things about her, in the 79 election, I remember re-watching that election, there's lots of talk on the night on the BBC about this idea that the polls may be underestimating her unpopularity because women do not want, did not want to admit to other women they weren't supporting her. And she became, through everything, then such and such, this icon as well as a politician. How much was she herself aware of having become this sort of brand, almost? Well, she was receptive to advice. And the, the two people who helped her with her image, her projection on television, were Tim Bell and Gordon Reese, both outsiders. Tim Bell, who'd come from Sachin and Sachin, the advertising world, and Gordon Reese, who was the sort of guru image consultant, and they, I think, did help her by, they made her go, and I think she met Laurence Olivier to talk to about how to deliver a speech, and they would tell her that she had to slow down, she had to change the pitch of her voice, she, they changed what she wore, and she listened to them, and it's, you know, you can see, it's very obvious if you watch any early interviews with her, and then subsequently. So she was quite sensitive to the need to perform well in, in those days, formal TV interviews or big speeches. And of course, we didn't have 24-hour media. It was much more about set pieces. So in a way, it was easier to prepare. She knew she was going to be giving the hours interview to Brown Walden or giving the speech to the Conservative Party conference, and she could spend a lot of time preparing. Today, you're constantly on display, so it's much less easy to do that. So our kind of overriding question that we're asking all of these is, were these prime ministers successful on their own terms? So what do you think Margaret Thatcher came to power hoping to achieve? She wanted to change Britain. She had an immediate challenge that, you know, she took office in May 1979 on the back of the winter of discontent. There was a huge feeling which contributed to her electoral victory that basically the unions had become too powerful, they were holding Britain to ransom, they were bankrupting the country, the nationalised industries simply were incapable of of working because of the uh, power of the trade unions and their refusal to uh, adopt any kind of modern practices or efficiencies. And so the trade union agenda was very much a part. And of course, the 81 budget and Geoffrey Howe in the early days was an absolutely crucial supporter. She had to have the Chancellor supporting her in these policies and that led to you know, the, the 364 economists all saying that she was completely mad, she was going to bankrupt the country and lead to a huge recession and all the rest and she saw that down and the policy worked. The trade union reforms she got through in not all in one case. The great thing about Margaret Thatcher was that she had a vision but she didn't try and do it all at once. Now, if you look at one of the lasting legacies of the Thatcher years, it is the privatisation of you know, a massive proportion of economic activity. You know, all the traditional industries, 
shipbuilding, steel, aerospace, car manufacture, and then on top of that, the public services, water, electricity, gas, telecoms. But actually, none of that was in the 1979 manifesto. That came later. Now, it was if you re go back and look at what the Centre for Policy Studies was arguing in 1975, they were proposing that privatisation was the way forward, but it wasn't something she was able to do immediately. Uh, first of all, she had to deal with the unions, she had to deal with the economic crisis, and then once that had been done, she embarked on privatisation, and it was very much, let's do one, see if it works, if it does, we'll move on to the next. So British Telecom was the first major one, and obviously some of the loss-making industries. Let's say you, know, you were meeting to discuss a, a reshuffle, was it a kind of, was it a hierarchical office, or what was her kind of preferred working style? Or for reshuffle, I, I only once attended a reshuffle meeting. That was done by her, the chief whip, and usually the PPS. And bear in mind, I was there in the last three years. She'd already been prime minister eight, nine years. She wasn't as good at having a knowledge and personal relationship with particularly the more recently arrived MPs. And she didn't spend enough time in the tea room having groups in. We tried after the... Anthony Mayer stalking horse challenge, which was the first sort of indicator of real problems in her relationship with the parliamentary party. We did try and make her have more meetings, and we used to get in groups of backbenchers. Part of the problem was that the backbenchers would come in and she'd say, right, you know, who would like to start off? And somebody would start expressing a concern about let's say the poll tax, which was the big issue. So they'd start saying, look, Margaret, no, we're very unhappy about the poll tax. It's really... And she would instantly unleash the defence of the poll tax. And people came away thinking, actually, yes, I've expressed my unhappiness, but it doesn't appear to have changed her mind in the very least. And that led, I think, to a discontent which grew on the backbenches, which ultimately resulted in the result of the leadership ballot. You also were involved in preparing her for PMQs, which back then, of course, was twice a week. What was her sort of approach to that? Oh, enormous hard work. This was a session which lasted for 15 minutes on a Tuesday and a Thursday. She would spend, in preparation for the 15 minutes, something like seven or eight hours. In terms of briefing, going into her box the night before, which spent several hours going through from every department around Whitehall. She would then sit down with me and Bernard Ingham and the private office. First thing the next morning, we go through the newspapers, talk about what were the likely topics. We'd then commission in briefing. We'd then go into permanent session from about 12 o'clock through to 3.15, which is when she got up to uh, speak. And... You can say that this is an extraordinary amount of time, but actually it was how she ran the government because it meant that she had to be confident that she could defend her government in any area that was going to be thrown up. So when she went through the briefings being prepared by the Department of Health or Education or whatever it was, lines to take. If she didn't like it, she'd say so. And you know, I sometimes was dispatched to ring up the department and say, the Prime Minister's senior brief and is... You know, I'd put it rather mildly, I'd say, you know, she's not very happy with this. And she'd come and take the phone from me and shout at a private secretary the other end, it's just not good enough. And she used this as a means of keeping on top of every issue within the government. And oh no, she was not particularly collegiate in her style of government. It was very strong central leadership. Predictably, John Whittingdale has a certain positive view of Margaret Thatcher and her achievements. For a slightly more critical view, let's go back to Florence. 
parking for a moment the kind of slight surrealness of, of whether or not she was I've realized I've written very unhelpfully in my notes Marxism today which is the uh, which I assume is a reference to the idea that they had that her main success was being a historic individual and she made herself the agent of things which were already happening and were going to happen and, and rode that wave which I think seems to be some of the early contenders but to look back a little bit she comes in at a time when the last, I think it's probably fair to say, three governments, Callaghan, Wilson II and Heath, have all, to a greater or lesser extent, failed to tackle the problems of deindustrialization, increasing clashes between the government and business and the trade unions. Why did Thatcher succeed when her immediate predecessors had failed? The extent to which her economic miracle really took place, I think, is pretty dubious. In the mid-1980s there was a period of sustained economic growth and there was a period of rising real wages for those who were in work and inflation was brought down but by the end of the decade inflation was pretty much as high as it was at the start of her time in power. So was unemployment and in the early 90s we had another recession. So the extent to which she had really come up with an economic miracle I think is, is pretty doubtful. I also think the fact that she managed to remain in power so long is to quite a large extent a result of the split of the Labour Party which split the anti-Thatcher vote and gave Thatcher a majority of over 100 in, in the 1983 election and in the 1987 election. She got those huge majorities with a, a smaller proportion of the popular vote than she had in 1979. So her popularity was going down in the 80s but she was able to hold on for so long and therefore she was able to, to sort of preside over the eventual kind of recovery, economic recovery that came in the middle of the decade, and to attribute it to this, to what she always said was this kind of harsh medicine that the British economy absolutely needed. But I think the, the kind of line of causation there is not entirely clear. But I suppose one thing that was new in the late 70s was this shift to the prioritisation of inflation over unemployment. And as you already mentioned, that actually happened when Callaghan was Prime Minister, there was already a shift happening there. And you can see some, a similar shift happening in lots of Western economies in the same time period. So I think Thatcher was, in this sense, a kind of representative of broader shifts that were happening in lots of places because of actually existing economic pressures and economic changes that governments simply had to respond to in the end. Where does North Sea Oil fit into this picture? Because I have heard it said that actually, really, her main achievement was squandering the North Sea oil revenue on tax cuts. And that actually a lot of the economic success can be explained there. Is there any truth to that? Or is this just sort of lefty propaganda people have been giving me? No, I think that is also a really important point. When Thatcher came to power, Britain was self-sufficient in food, about to become self-sufficient in power and had this developmental state in place, which for three decades had been massively investing in infrastructure and public services and a welfare state, all of those things hugely cushioned Thatcher during the time that she was in power. And she was able to use the benefits of North Sea oil, privatizations, sales of council houses. This was a selling off of things that British governments had spent 30 years or more investing in. There does seem to be a lot of selling of the family silver going on rather than... Just thinking about the, the revenue side of the balance sheet, not the asset side. 
the other thing I'm interested in is the extent to which her ideas changed because she was around for a very long time. She was you know, prime minister for 11 and a half years, Tory party leader for 15. And she was still a big figure on the back benches protesting against the Maastricht Treaty and so on for much of the major government as well. Did she remain consistent in that time? And if she changed, was she aware of changing? Did she shift? Well, I think Thatcher does herself as the Iron Lady. As soon as that term got used, she was thrilled about it and liked to play it up. Actually, she did undertake quite a lot of sort of pragmatic manoeuvres, sometimes going against her sort of stated principles while she was in office. For example, in 1981, threats of a, a big strike in the coal industry, she basically did what she said she was against and, and accepted a very large wage rise for the miners in order to stave off a strike. And of course, later on, she was willing to face down the NUM and went into a massive confrontation with them. So I think she was pragmatic and flexible more than she liked to present herself. And she did change over time, probably more than she wanted to accept or present herself as changing publicly. Europe is probably the biggest area where you can, I think, see her, her views change over time. Now, she would have said that was because the European project changed. And then it went from being a kind of economic project about freeing markets, basically, to being more of a social project about giving workers protection and more about regulation and bureaucracy, two things that she always said that she was against. Actually, I think that there's an element of truth to her argument. The European project has obviously been changing constantly over time as it has evolved, but her kind of implacable hostility to Europe gained more and more ideological fervour as time went on. And I think partly that was to do with the fact that it became tied up in her sort of anger at not being Prime Minister and at seeing John Major making compromises and doing things that she wouldn't have done that she didn't think should be done. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I think, particularly if you look at the state of the Conservative Party and the issues that it has taken as important the last 10, 15, 20 years, I think you can make an argument that it's actually the downfall of Margaret Thatcher that that creates the world we're living in. What do you reckon? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a contingent part, although this is the slightly surreal thing, and this is the last example of a Conservative Prime Minister being brought down for being insufficiently pro-European and also I would argue probably more importantly for the poll tax. But yeah, her fall is equally historically significant. So shall we go back and talk to John about that? There were two issues which proved extremely difficult, where she was to some extent at odds with a number of members of the Conservative Parliamentary Party, and those were the two which contributed really to her downfall. The first was the community charge, or poll tax, as of course popularly known, which was something she had brought in but had been to some extent undermined by the Treasury because the financing of it meant that the 
burden of the poll tax was much higher than originally people had anticipated because the Treasury withdrew local government support at the same time as it was being brought in. And so the poll tax proved very unpopular. A lot of MPs who could see that it was going down very badly and wanted it changed because they felt that unless that happened they would potentially lose their seats and she was resistant to that. So that was a cause of discontent with quite a large number of MPs, particularly in marginal seats. And then there was the issue of Europe and it was the issue of Europe which led to Geoffrey Howe being moved from being Foreign Secretary which was something which he was very upset by and contributed to his eventual resignation. There was then the battles with Nigel Lawson overshadowing the Deutschmark, and then with John Major over whether we should join the ERM. And about nine months into my time working for her, she delivered the Bruges speech, which was the first time when the Prime Minister had, or any major political figure, had expressed serious unhappiness with the direction in which Europe was going. There is a danger if we start on Europe, we just get sucked into it. <laughs> yeah, it's but, been um, ever since, it's 20 quite. years, we're still having the same argument, 30 but, years. But, but since we're here, two things I've always found quite interesting about the Bruges speech, one of which is, if you read it from a modern perspective, it's incredibly moderate. It's not the kind of what, what became Euroscepticism and then actual sort of leaving the European Union. It's a much gentler approach. But also it came just two years after she signed the Single European Act. How do you explain that kind of contradiction? I I talk to her about the Single European Act because, of course, supporters of the EU will always say, but it was Margaret Thatcher who signed the Single European Act. It is not contradictory. Her explanation was that for her, Europe was always about free trade and removing barriers and making it easier to do business and it was about goods and services it wasn't about people at that stage so much Uh, but it was about removing barriers to trade and to create a single market at that time required the agreement of all member states and there were one or two that were very reluctant to reduce tariff barriers and the only way we would bring about a genuine free market in goods without barriers was by somehow overcoming the resistance of one or two. And so the, that led to the invention of qualified majority voting. Now, the problem was that her view was that it was only going to apply in a very clearly defined area which related to barriers, tariffs and non-tariff barriers to trade in goods and services. What she did not anticipate was that it, the definition of single market measures would be ex- extended to things which she didn't regard as anything to do with single market, employment and social law being the classic example of that. And she once said to me, in terms of her criticism of the EU, that yes, she had signed up to the Single European Act, which had helped to bring this in, and uh, she said to me, you know, if you burnt your fingers, you don't put your hand back in the fire. And so she almost took it as a lesson of the way in which Europe would take a measure and use it to force through an agenda which was never intended by the original uh, purpose of the bill. On the poll tax, it feels to me like one of one of um, Margaret Thatcher's kind of key characteristics as a politician that she was very in tune with what her voters and potential voters wanted for a long time until suddenly she wasn't. So why do you think after 10 years she would have pushed a measure that was quite unpopular, even among Conservative supporters? The principle was one which I thought was perfectly fair and sellable. The problem was that when you move, and local government finance has been a sort of disaster area for every government that has 
tried to tackle it. And the problem was that the initial analyses of the placing the rates, the community charge, we did a, a calculation of what the average bill size would be. And actually, in reality, it turned out to be far higher. Now, as I say, that was because of the Treasury. It was because Nigel Lawson never supported it, always had opposed it, and actually sabotaged it because he withdrew the support of the Treasury of local government so that the community charge was having to meet a much higher proportion of local government spending than previously the rates had done. That was what went wrong. Now, your question as to why she did not see that unless something significant was done to change it, it was never going to be popular or succeed, I think she came to realise But she was somebody who was very used to confronting opposition and being told that something was very unpopular, but nevertheless, by force of argument and by strength of will, making it work. And I think she thought that she could make the community charge work. I don't think in the end it was ever going to succeed simply because I can remember sitting in Downing Street on the day of the Trafalgar Square demonstration and... It was only, the gates to number 10 had only been installed about two months earlier. And literally, I think, had those gates not been there, you, know, you might have had people storming number 10. The Tory MPs sitting on marginal seats themselves, they could not see how they could win unless something changed. And if she wasn't willing to change it, then they concluded the only thing that could change was her. You talk about her staring down opposition. Now, one of the fascinating things about the 1980s is throughout the kind of advanced economies you have something which with various local flavors looks a lot like what happened in the united kingdom and opening up to markets yeah whether you want to call it reaganism or free marketism or neoliberalism it it happens in most places how historically important do you think she was or would it have happened under any conservative leader no, it wouldn't have happened under any Conservative leader. I think the, the real change in the Conservative Party took place after the loss of the election in 1974, when the Heath approach was clearly had been rejected, and the person who pioneered a new approach was Keith Joseph. And it was the establishment of the Centre for Policy Studies and the development of the free market monetarist economic strategy which she adopted so she was hugely influenced by Keith Joseph and by the what was being done in the CPS and the IEA so she was elected leader with a very clear vision of a completely different approach to running the economy to what anyone had tried before and I think it is hard to see who else would have had the strength of purpose to actually implement that. And you have to remember that in 1979-80, she was introducing pretty tough policies against not just a lot of opposition in the country, but against a huge body of opinion of the Conservative Party itself. So there's a quote in the Gillian Barnes column, which I'm going to mangle horribly, but I think he he described uh, Thatcher as relentlessly monocular and said she was aware she was the most fated Prime Minister in generations, but couldn't see she was also the most loathed. Do you think that was fair? I don't think... I mean, she won three general elections in a row, and it's very easy to forget what an extraordinary thing it was for a woman to become the most powerful and influential leader this country has had for a generation. And and her great achievement is that actually you talk about her without really referring to the fact that of her sex. She changed perception 
completely. She did so in a way which inspired huge loyalty and admiration from the people who supported her. If you go to my constituency now, even now, oh, bring back Maggie Thatcher, is still heard on doorsteps. Now, if you go to the mining communities, you will still hear, again, 25, 30 years on, people who are deeply bitter about the destruction of their communities, about the economic consequences of the closures, not just to the coal mines, but the steelworks, etc. She believed it was necessary for the economic recovery of Britain to do these things. But she wasn't immune to the personal consequences, but she felt it had to be done. And I mean, the one area where she never managed to attract support for Scotland. And I went with her on several occasions to Scotland, and I can remember the sort of noise of the protesters outside the conference in the hotel, which she never quite understood why she had never been able to persuade Scotland in the way she had the rest of the country. So as the major government uh, proceeded, there were a number of splits in the party and difficulties over Maastricht and stuff. I, I may have been understating that. It often felt that you could detect a certain amount of backseat driving from Thatcher. Was, was there any regret about that as that government sort of began to struggle and, and Labour got stronger? I, I have no doubt that John Major feels that because he said so. She wasn't trying to backseat drive. She was expressing her view. She had spent her entire political life arguing her case very forcibly, making it absolutely plain what she thought. And, you know, she hadn't chosen to step down as Prime Minister. She actually deeply resented the fact that she had been brought down by people who she saw. I think she once used the word pygmies, but she was very unhappy and very bitter, certainly in the early stages. And, of course, Europe was something she felt increasingly strongly about. She was very opposed to the Maastricht Treaty, and she didn't see why she shouldn't state her view. Now, it wasn't a plot. It was just that if you met her and you asked her, what do you think of the Maastricht Treaty, she wasn't going to restrain herself. Staying with the topic of legacy, do you think she felt her project was unfinished? What did she think of her own record? Oh, she was very proud. Of course, like all Prime Ministers, she used to keep the list of the achievements. There were areas where I think she certainly felt you know, the needed to be further change. She had addressed largely the sort of core economic issues, the, the sort of productivity industry, the, the social area she had done less. The, the one thing she had done which was transformational, which she was hugely proud, was home ownership through sale of council houses, which had a you know, permanent effect in terms of changing the composition of the country in terms of proportion of homeowners. It's not been that permanent, has it? It's now in free fall. But uh, it's only now that there's actually talk uh, of investment in social housing again. But the aspiration to own one's own home is still something recognised by governments, and you know, the government even now is still talking about social housing owners, but, uh, tenants eventually having a right to buy. The area which did feature, certainly, when I was briefing her for Prime Minister's questions of the last three years and came up in election campaigns, and is still, you know, the other great issue of British politics was the NHS, where she was deeply frustrated that she could quote about real terms increases year after year, but, you know, we were still looking at financial crises in the NHS. Coming on for 40 years later, nothing very much has changed. She had personal loyalty from a small number of people who adored her, and 
in Parliament, she had the No Turning Back group, who were absolute ardent supporters, and then she had her own personal team. In my view, one of the things which did huge damage to her personally was the death of Ian Gower, because Ian Gower was incredibly loyal to her, even though he was no longer her PPS and had even left the government over a disagreement about Northern Ireland, he remained very loyal to her. And he was a hugely popular figure in the Conservative Party, and he was also very close to Geoffrey Howe. And I think had he lived, then the relationship between her and Geoffrey Howe would not have deteriorated to the extent that it did. And it was that, ultimately, which precipitated the leadership challenge of Michael Heseltine. So the question we've been asking throughout this programme really is, did, did the Prime Ministers succeed on their own terms? Obviously, Thatcher's probably the biggest figure historically we've, we've covered. Seem, what do you reckon? Would she, would she look back on her legacy with, with delight? Well, it's a really interesting one, isn't it? Because in many ways, right, the, these are the Prime Ministers of the Thatcher era. She created an economic consensus which broadly endures up until sort of the first system shock to it, which is the Brexit vote at the end of David Cameron then experiences a second system shock in the face of the 2017 election, which is the effective end of the Theresa May premiership in terms of its ability to actually do stuff. Now, of course, I think there are loads of ways you would say she didn't succeed. You know, she didn't envisage a kind of more socially liberal, some of the excesses of, of the deregulation that she oversaw. She, of course, herself came to repudiate what is probably actually her biggest economic achievement which was taking us into the single market really quickly as well like she repudiated that within about three or four years yes yes and in many ways it is the in terms of you know the british economic model that is the, the centerpiece of it and of course in this weird situation where although you know we could have a much longer argument about how sincere that is both political parties have kind of repudiated thatcherism and, and then there's the kind of weirdness of you know do we look back and go she was lucky and was skilled at presenting herself as the architect of changes that were happening around the world or do we see her as a kind of historic figure in her own right the conclusion i reach at the end is i'm not sure because the weird thing is is although it's a long time ago relatively speaking so long ago than even you weren't alive when she became prime minister thank um, you it's recent in the we don't know what's going to happen next. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I do think her legacy looks a lot shakier than it did, certainly before the crash, but I think even before about five or six years ago. And a lot of the things that I think she would have counted as achievements, such as the, the, the mass increase in, in things like share ownership and home ownership especially, have, have been receding. We may be coming out of an era of, of, of low tax as well. And also, I just keep thinking about about Norway uh, and, and the fact that, you know, this, this other country that had a massive uh, oil find invested all in the sovereign wealth fund that's still there, whereas Britain basically sold the family silver. You can only exist on that rev those revenues for so long. And is there really that much to show for it? Particularly, actually, the macroeconomic policy of the Thatcher era is just crazy, right? You know, sort of oh, we tried this thing, oh, it didn't work, crash, crash, boom, boom. It's actually really only in the era of Major, who I think of this series, I'd say the Prime Minister who whose view I've you know, become kinder towards as a result of doing this is probably Major. But yeah, it's interesting because I think if we'd done this in 2015, right, we'd have gone, Thatcherism with socially liberal characteristics has just won a parliamentary majority. Yeah, the Conservatives have essentially hobbled the Liberal Democrats who'd been their big problem for the last 20 years at that point. Everything's coming up David Cameron. 
broadly, things looked a lot better for the Thatcher project than they do right now, where, yeah, you do have this kind of slight weird thing in the Conservative Party hasn't really worked out what it is something else that hadn't happened yet in early 2015 was the corbyn project and even though that's now been and gone there has been a sort of pull of a lot of younger voters especially back to left-wing ideas which were felt to be kind of like out of the overton window yeah i think that is partly a consequence of the thatcher legacy having having shut people out and i think a large part of that is as you say the collapse of um thatcherism as a economically a successful project so that's the thing i think you know the the nice thing about this series is that we have they feel like a complete set and and it is the it's the thatcher consensus era as you say if you kind of look at history there's been kind of a big shift in political economy roughly every 40 years um you have like one around the turn of the 20th century you have one after world war Two. you have one in the late 70s early 80s and it kind of feels like we were due one after the crash but we still don't know what that is. It sort of feels like the Thatcherite consensus, which which Boris Johnson's government, to be fair, has kind of like started undermining a bit. It kind of feels like that's died, but we don't know what to replace it with yet. So I wonder if we're doing this at the exact point that the Thatcher legacy was being wound back by by people who should be her supporters. You've been listening to Prime Ministerial with me, Stephen Bush, political editor of The New Statesman. And me, John Elledge, author of The Compendium of Not Quite Everything. We're produced by Adrian Bradley and May Robson. With special thanks to Caroline Crampton and Nick Hilton. Thanks for listening. Please leave us a review and don't forget to subscribe. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.